uh, Ralph Winter, our, our plenary speaker for today. Uh, Ralph is a member of the Directors Guild of America and a member of the American, or, or excuse me, a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Um, you have, if you didn't know his name before this conference, you would have known his work, uh, being producer of the Star Trek movies two through six, uh, having produced uh, both Fantastic Four movies for the X-Men movie series, along with other uh, major blockbuster films like the uh, Tim Burton's remake of The Planet of the Apes and so forth. Uh, collectively, his films have grossed over $2 billion, so there's a good chance you've, you've given some money to those movies, some of that. Um, in addition to uh, producing these blockbusters, of course, you just can't start off producing blockbusters. It'd be nice. I'd like to go into Fox and say, you know, I'll produce your next one. But uh, obviously, you've got to start somewhere. His uh, early entertainment work was um, doing post-production work with uh, Paramount, uh, with um, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy. I'm sure you all have seen those shows. Um, but it's not just blockbuster films that he's been associated with. He's done several independent and Christian-oriented films. He is a very outspoken Christian uh, in Hollywood. Um, some of his independent uh, and or Christian films that he's done include the least of these, three, The Visitation, and uh, the original Left Behind movie with uh, Kirk Cameron. Uh, in addition, he has gone down recently the route of doing a documentary uh, with a science-oriented movie that was a response or a follow-up movie to Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth called Cool It. Um, so he has his hands uh, in many, many different areas and a spectrum of what he's done and produced is quite broad. Um, it's kind of interesting that, uh, I mean, whichever, however you felt, feel about any of these films or their themes or, or how you felt about it, it's kind of interesting to with, within one year, uh, the same year that he's doing a movie about uh, apes uh, evolving into humans, he does Left Behind with Kirk Cameron, a famous uh, a conservative there. So quite big spread there on the type of movies that he's producing uh, to a variety of different audiences. Uh, he's definitely uh, not just one, uh, one niche uh, type of uh, uh, producer. Um, when I went looking, when, we were, when this theme of science, faith, and the media communicating beyond books was accepted by the council, and I went looking for someone, a big producer, that I thought we could get that would be a Christian in Hollywood to come speak with us. Um, I asked a couple of connections I had in the community, and both of them uh, said Ralph Winter. And so I was pretty uh, excited about that, uh, that, uh, that the same name came up twice with the two people I asked. And uh, uh, knowing that he's done all these blockbusters, I thought, what are the chances of getting him? And, um, and once I finally uh, uh, thought I really had him in the bag, and yes, he's going to come, and speak at our conference, I, I told my, uh, one of my kids uh, who's an actor, you know, I'm bringing, bringing Ralph Winter, you know, he's going to speak. You know, you're proud of your dad, I brought Ralph Winter to speak at our conference. And he immediately, having been a student <coughs> at CBU, was thinking of Pastor Ralph Winter, who's, uh, who many of you may know because he's a former member of ASA. And uh, Ralph Winter, though, the, the big famous pastor Ralph Winter that is taught about in the classes at CBU, uh, passed away a couple years ago. And he said, you're bringing Ralph Winter. And I said, yeah, I'm bringing Ralph Winter. And he said, I don't think so. And I, I said, no, seriously, I just talked to him the other day. He goes, how would you talk to me the other day? And I explained to him, it's, he's the producer, Ralph Winter. Oh, the producer. And I named all his films. He goes, oh, oh, oh. I said, so now are you impressed with your dad that I was able to bring Ralph Winter? He goes, dad, I'd be even more impressed if you brought the dead Ralph Winter back to speak. Now, um, my son's been comic since he was two years old, I, I, and he would tell people that as a two-year-old. He would tell them, I'm going to make movies about comics. I don't know. So he's, he's been a very funny guy all the time. Um, continuing on about Ralph, last thing I'd like to leave you with is uh, um, in, in speaking with uh, other individuals uh, about Ralph, I found out that he is a great mentor to many uh, in the movie industry and takes a lot of time out of his busy schedule to go look at films of, of up-and-coming 
filmmakers and critiquing them and, and mentoring uh, several individuals uh, with their careers, including one of those people he mentored um, was the production supervisor of last year's um, Oscar-winning uh, uh, film, um, The Artist. And that person will be here in, in, uh, in the panel later this afternoon, or later this evening and so forth. So he's had a real influence uh, on the Hollywood community as a whole, and in particularly on uh, helping uh, Christians in the Hollywood community. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, welcome our speaker, uh, Ralph Winter. Well, great. Thanks for um, inviting me and uh, allowing me this opportunity. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. I think it's going to be a lot of, hopefully be a lot of fun and hopefully, uh, I'm turn this a little closer, we'll have some laughs together. Um, or you'll throw me out, one of the, one or the other. I think Ralph would have appreciated that note. He has a great, he had a great sense of humor. He, we were friends. We, uh, I grew up with his kids. And I had dinner with him about three months before he passed. And uh, he had a great sense of humor. It was a lot of fun to, uh, to be around him. Well, I want to talk about the importance of story and about how that works together in the church, in our workplace, in science, and in our lives. There's always been a great relationship of media and science on movies that I've worked on and television shows. We at least attempt to be accurate. Uh, on the Star Trek movies, because I live in La Crescenta, um, which is close to JPL in Pasadena, we would go to JPL and find folks that could help us what is antimatter, you know, and, and, and see if we couldn't uh, figure out what that's about. But we're about entertaining, and so it's not about telling people what all the buttons do, but we wanted to have an understanding about the science so we weren't completely off base. Um, we hired a linguist, Mark Okran, to help us invent the Klingon language. We weren't going to attempt to uh, do that on our own. Um, on military movies, we hire experts. Uh, on po a police TV series I did called High Incident, with Steven Spielberg, we hired uh, police experts. And I did a, a movie of the week about uh, the first community on the moon called Plymouth. And it was, um, it didn't get accepted. It was written and developed by uh, David Lee Zolotov, who uh, created MacGyver. But we always were trying to figure out how can we tell some of these stories because they're, they're interesting. Am I got this too close? Am I too close? I'm not close enough? You want me closer? I think that's the problem. I get too close. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll stand over here. Um, so, and then I want to talk a little about the future of media and science and us as Christians. And then um, the other thing I want to do, tilt it up maybe, yeah? Is that okay? Better? We're okay? All right. <laughs> Ooh. Um, I wanted to find a couple of terms before I start. And, and usually one of those terms is, what is a producer? My wife has been asking this question every day that I've been working. What do you do? The producer's the one at the Oscar award that picks up the last award that's given, the award for best picture. And the producer is the one who is the champion, the cheerleader. Someone's got to be the person that drags the entire enterprise over the finish line. And that's what a producer is. So it's it, it can start in a lot of different ways, but it involves the funding, it involves the script, it involves the director, it involves the studio. There's lots of moving parts, which is what makes the job interesting and uh, terrifying and exciting all at the same time. Uh, the director, his or her job is about taking the written script and staging it and presenting it and visualizing how the story is going to be told. But the producer has to be in there uh, at the beginning to pull all those things together. And that's the highest award in the movie business. So it's about that um, pulling all those things together, being the person where the buck stops. So I think it would be very appropriate to have a, a joke about a producer. A man in a hot air balloon realizes he's lost. He reduces altitude and he spots a woman below. He descends a bit more and shouts, excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. The woman below replied, you're in a hot air balloon hovering about 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. 
You must be a production manager, said the balloonist. I am, replied the woman, but how did you know? Well, answered the balloonist, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you've not been much help so far. The woman below responded, you must be a producer. <laughs> I am, said the balloonist, but how did you know? Well, the woman said, you don't know where you are or where you're going. You've risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. <laughs> and now you made a promise which you have no idea how to keep, and you expect me to solve your problem. <laughs> the fact is, you're in exactly the same position you were before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. That's not all that producers do, but it can appear that way at times. Joke telling is storytelling. There's a structure, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. And you have to know where you're going. And when it works, you get a laugh, you get the desired result. Storytelling is what makes us human. Ancient humans sat around a fire and told stories. Stories of the events of the day, of adventure, of conquest, of loss, laughter, and fear. Storytelling has always been a teaching aid for adults and youth about the lessons and the joys of life. Storytelling is what makes us different from all of God's other creations. We tease stories today in 140 characters or signal our involvement in a story with a thumbs up in Facebook. Advertisers tell you what you should buy. Banks and financial institutions pitch you why you should use their products. Musicians craft a narrative of their feelings. Charities tell you about moving emotional stories of pain and need. The courtroom builds a case and a storyline. Venture capitalists craft their narrative. It goes on and on in our culture. Everyone is trying to tell you a story. Everyone has a narrative. And we sit around a digital campfire telling stories. Well, making movies is what I do, and that's just another form of storytelling. And what I like about it is that you can go further and deeper with characters, with heroes, with their journey and their story. You get to learn what he or she values, what they question, what they believe about life, and how they act on those beliefs, just like those stories on the campfire. I think great movies ask big questions, questions that heroes struggle with on their journey. For me in the X-Men, the questions were developed in the comics, but we brought them to life in the movies. Some of those questions were, do I fit in with everyone else? Should I fit in? Or do I stand apart? Which, by the way, I think are questions that are relevant if you're 14 years old or you're 84. What is my role in the family, in the culture? Are they going to discard me? Is there a place for me? That was the enduring question in Lawrence of Arabia at the very end when he comes to that final gap in the, in the movie, that, that canal, and he yells across, who are you? He was searching the entire movie. Who is he? What is it about? Great art asks great questions. Well, what makes a great story? And why do great stories connect with us? I think there's a buried roadmap as to why movies are successful and make an impact in our culture. I think there's a key to unlocking the meaning of movies. And I think that can be a key as well to unlocking understanding about who I am and who you are. Every great movie is a journey. And it's usually a journey from slavery to freedom. The movie Titanic was just released in April, re-released at the 100th anniversary. And Rose is on that journey from slavery to freedom. She boards the ship talking about slavery, about being in chains. And at the end, she speaks about freedom, how Jack set her free in every way that a person could be set. It's a journey. It's a process. We know Harry Potter is going to overcome his obstacles, but how is he going to do it? And that fueled, I don't know, eight movies. We know James Bond will get the bad guy, but how does he do it? The 23rd movie is coming up here in November. Matthew Bourne doesn't know what happened to him, and now he's going to have a new actor play him. But will he find out more? We know how the story ends, but the process is what's compelling, inspiring, or thrilling. On American Idol, the judges talk about the journey of the song. They know the song. They know the music. They know how it ends. But is it exciting? Does it move you in some way? Do you care? It's not about giving away the ending. People say, no, no, don't tell me how the movie ends. I guarantee you, no one went to see the movie Titanic thinking that the ship would not sink. 
No one. You know it's going to sink. It's the journey that's fascinating. It's the journey that's exciting. We learn what characters value and how they change. It's not about the ending. Andrew Stanton, who's the creative force behind the movie WALL-E, says, drama is anticipation mingled with uncertainty. The problem with Christian movies, there's no uncertainty. There's no anticipation. You know exactly how it's going to end, and there's, but is there any wonder, any joy, any inspiration before we get there? That's the point that Rebecca was making last night. We need to let the audience figure it out. Don't give them the answers. Andrew Stanton says, give them the formula. Give them two plus two. Don't give them the answer. Let them figure it out for themselves. Anticipation mingled with uncertainty. Even in spite of the uncertain, uh, unfortunate event that happened this weekend, the Dark Knight is going to crush the global box office this weekend because there is uh, anticipation mingled with uncertainty about those characters. All right, so we need a character. We need a hero. We need somebody we can care about. The first thing people ask when, they, uh, when you see a movie, what's it about? Who's in it? Make me care about your story. It can be a singular hero like Indiana Jones or Bridget Jones. It can be an animated hero like Woody in the Toy Story movies. It could be a group of heroes like X-Men or Fantastic Four. But make me care. That's the job of a storyteller. Make me care. We know what it's like not to care. We flip through TV channels. We wander the magazine rack. We scan web pages. We know what that feels like. But we stop on some channels. And we stay on some web pages. What makes me care? Now, I like heroes. And, and great movies have heroes who go on a journey. In the comic book and the pop culture world, those things are writ large. We can see those elements most clearly. But I think all stories have similar characteristics. So I'm going to give you some keys. I'm going to give you seven words that all movie heroes have in common. And I believe you share some of those same characteristics with those heroes. I'm going to use Star Wars. It's been out for 35 years. You've had 35 years to see the movie. Uh, it's the first one that came out in 77. And most of the people on the planet have seen the movie. All heroes start with a need or a lack. Luke Skywalker in Episode 4 of Star Wars, the first one, is a complaining teenager. He's self-absorbed. He needs to grow up. He lives on a farm with his aunt and his uncle. His parents are gone, and he's bored out of his mind. He's very unhappy. In great stories, the need is usually a moral need, how to act towards others. And the hero is usually unaware of that lack or need. So there's got to be some inner motor that drives along and, uh, and pushes him, and that's where the desire comes in. Out of that need comes a desire. What Luke really wants to do is to fly. He wants to be a pilot. He wants to follow Obi-Wan. He wants to help the rebellion. That's his dream or desire. And he wants to conquer and manipulate all this technology like his droids, harness it, and fight for the rebellion. He just doesn't want to be on that farm. He doesn't care about his family. And all movies have this sort of inner motor. In The Godfather, it's about pleasing dad. In WALL-E, it's about finding beauty. In Toy Story, it's Woody who wants to do the right thing for Andy. In Shane, it's about recognizing who he is and owning up to it. So a lack, a dream, and an opponent. Standing directly in the path of our hero's dream or desire is an opponent. Always. Now in Star Wars, this is very simple. If you ever get confused, because Luke wears white and Darth wears black. So if you get confused at any time during the movie, who's the hero, who's the opponent? George makes it very simple. The opponent is there to prevent the hero from getting to his or her dream. So the next thing that happens is that the hero develops a plan. And this is a big part of the movie, and it's usually an elaborate plan. In his case, with the help of his mentor with Obi-Wan. And the hero goes after his or her goal with a passion. They are driven. They are obsessive about getting to their goal. So the hero will do anything, and they want to bend the rules. I love the scene, I was talking about this to someone last night, I love the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones doesn't want to have a sword fight. He pulls his gun out and he shoots him. He's got to find Marion. He's got to get the Ark. He doesn't have time to, have a, to learn how to sword fight with this guy who's, he just shoots him. You're not supposed to do that. He wants to get to his goal. In one of the Star Trek movies I worked on, Captain Kirk is accused of lying on the, the Kobayashi Maru simulation. He cheats. He, has, he doesn't have time for a logical discussion. He bends the rules to get to where he's going. 
And with heroes that we learn about what they value, that's why we trust them and we appreciate, we laugh, and we enjoy when they do those things. This part of the story is very complex and very involved, and there are several battles, uh, usually along the way, to make it interesting. But it all leads to one battle. It leads to an epic battle. It's a life-changing battle where our hero almost dies. How many times has Harry Potter almost died? I think eight out of the eight movies, right? Luke almost dies in the trash compactor. Batman's always on the edge of death. It's always epic. Yet in these battles, they are not just physical battles. But in our best movies, in our best stories, and in your story, it's a battle of values. It's a battle of what Luke believes in versus what Darth believes in. That's ultimately what the story is about. The result of that battle, coming out of that battle, the hero comes away with a self-revelation. Luke learns to trust the Force and not depend on the machines. You've turned off the targeting device. Stay on target. He learns from a greater power. He throws off the technology. He trusts what he learns from Obi-Wan. And the hero learns something about himself or herself that they did not know at the beginning. That's the growth of our hero. And now, armed with this new knowledge, armed with this new power, our hero is at a new equilibrium. Or in movie studio speak, sequels. And it's a tried and true formula. And it's crafted that way. And when it's crafted to be interesting and compelling and inspiring, you'll go. Now, in that structure, I think that self-revelation is the key to unlock the meaning of our journey and finding our place. The self-revelation is where we make emotional connections with a movie or a story. If there's a part of the movie where you might cry or you might get emotional, it's this point. And in a well-told story, it's when our hero reveals himself or herself, even just a little bit, that we identify with what they feel. Only when we reveal something of our journey and what we have learned in personally does the same thing happen. Do we make a connection? In Avatar, the most widely seen movie, the current generation, the characters' deepest reveal to each other were the words, I see you. They were telling each other, I'm here for you. I see you should resonate with us as Christians. That's what God did for us. He knows my name. He sees me. We are not alone. My inner self is here for you. That's what I see you mean. We don't want to self-reveal. It's hard. It's risky. Yet our family and friends want us to do that. They long for it. It's the only way that we really see each other. In Toy Story, it's only when Woody reveals to Buzz Lightyear that he, Woody, deserves to be strapped to that rocket that the evil neighbor kid, Sid, constructed. Woody thinks and only thought about himself and when he realized that he deserves to be sacrificed. And Buzz realizes he's only a toy, but he's a toy that his owner has written his name on his soul. That's not inadvertent. That's, that's deliberate by the author. And only when both reveal themselves to each other do they build a strong, lasting, durable friendship. Two sequels. Look at the best picture Oscar this year, the artist. The highest award. The last Oscar handed out to the producer. The toughest job. Who's crazy enough to make a black and white silent movie in a world of Avatar and 3D? We live in a culture where everyone walks around connected to something else and not even speaking with each other. We sit around as families texting and reading email. Real conversations seem to be something of the past. So make a silent movie in black and white, yet it forces the audience to slow down and to pay attention to the story. And it created something wonderful. I think Mel Gibson did the same thing with The Passion, a story that you thought you knew, but you had to watch the screen because he did it in a language that no one speaks. You had to pay attention. And the movie had power because it's also about us. In the movie, The Artist, it wasn't just about the crash of 1929 that set it off. It's the crash of 2008. George had to find his way and to recalibrate forward, just like everyone in this country is doing it at this moment. Is there a place for me? That's what the movie's about. That's why it connects. I think great heroes in the Bible about self-revelation are the same. Think of King David. In going after Goliath, he rejects the normal body armor time-tested strategies to defeat Goliath, but rather declares his allegiance to the God of Israel, depends on God for the outcome. And if you read the text, it says that he actually runs 
at Goliath. Shocking enough for Goliath and probably make him a little easier target to hit with a smooth stone. And I have no doubt later in his career that David, while negotiating treaties, kept that enormous sword on display just to remind himself and others who cut off Goliath's head and what God did in his life that day. Or David again caught by Nathan admitting his adultery and deep failure. These self-revelations shaped the greatest king of Israel and defined the character of a man who was after God's own heart. Or think how Luke records the transfiguration, a cinematic scene. The stage is fully lit. The curtains are pulled back. All the important players are present. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the law, the prophets, the inner circle. And what does Luke say that they talk about? They talk about his impending journey, where he's going, what he's doing. In my own life, one of the most important self-revelations came when I was shooting the movie Hackers. I was in New York with my kids, getting one last chunk of time with them before traveling with the crew back to London. My wife was in L.A., and while at the new Beauty and Beast musical in New York with my kids, I was urgently paged to call home. My father-in-law had committed suicide. We were all on planes the next day, but I was headed to London with my crew, so with my wife's blessing and many friends and community to care for her, I went ahead with the crew. Months passed, the movie went well, and United Artists asked me to leave the picture and to take over a James Bond movie, which was in trouble. For me as a producer, adding a Bond picture to my Star Trek resume was going to be amazing. Gold and I would shoot on three continents, including James Bond chasing the bad guys in a tank for a month in St. Petersburg. It was a career dream. I met my wife in New York to talk it through since it would keep me traveling for another nine months. And as only those discussions can go with a spouse, I realized that if I took the job, I would be living at a different address when I returned home. The ambition was out of control. I couldn't see how I was neglecting my family, even though I was providing for them, I was planting for the future. So right there, I committed to my family that I would turn down the job I would find work in L.A. until our kids were out of high school. And I went back to London, and I distinctly remember telling the head of UA that I would not take the job. Job too tough, he said. No, that's not what I said. I'm choosing my family, not the job. He and I never spoke again. I came home looking for work, praying for significant work, for great projects, for directors. But for six months, nothing. Okay, God, you told me this is the right thing to do. Now what? Is this a joke? He and I had lots of conversation. Meanwhile, my wife is praying for work that would shoot in my neighborhood. So out of the blue, I get a call to work on a TV series, not a movie, but it shoots in the San Fernando Valley near my home with Steven Spielberg. And as I look back, that led to many other movies that I could not have planned on, like X-Men, like Tim Burton, and others. And when I look back, James Bond doesn't matter a bit. But I'm still married. God gave me back my kids and my wife. That's what lasts. How will you tell your story? What about your journey? What about the milestones that you're going through? What will you talk about at dinner with your family and parents and friends? The best movies show us that the self-revelation is how you connect. And that's what you've learned on your journey. What do you do with that new equilibrium? Where is the strength for the next journey? You have to do it together. You can't do it alone. So you're in a community of scientists. How are you going to figure that out together? How does it relate? Now, I've been thinking about this for a while, and you've probably already had these thoughts, but these are new thoughts for me, okay? But I think you need a role model. I think you need a mascot. I think you need a hero. I think you need someone that epitomizes the essence of who you are. Someone who makes a self-revelation every week. So I have a suggestion. I have a hypothesis. Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory on TV. <laughs> so let me support my thesis. Sheldon is the 21st century version of Spock. He's a high-functioning autistic genius, a science geek with some OCD thrown in. And I like him. There's a bit of me in him with my geekiness having produced five Star Trek movies, and a little OCD. My mom used to write down every piece of mail that came to the house and kept a log. I just thought that was cool. I didn't realize that was weird. 
So I like Sheldon. And he reminds me of some of my friends at JPL that I've known over the years. And in every episode, Sheldon gets exposed in some way, making him a little more human, the same way that Spock struggled in every movie. Now, in the series, Sheldon is a Caltech theoretical physicist who shares an apartment with his colleague and best friend, Leonard Hofstadter. Sheldon exhibits a strict adherence to a routine, a total lack of social skills, a tenuous understanding of irony, sarcasm, and humor, and a general lack of humility or empathy. He's vocal about his own superior intellect compared to those around him. And these characteristics provide the bulk of the character's humor, and he's been described as the breakout character. Once again, they're highly nominated uh, this year in the Emmys. So I think we need to embrace Sheldon, even though all of those bad things aren't who you are. The show is centered on five characters, Leonard and Sheldon, the two physicists, Penny the waitress, aspiring actress, and Leonard's uh, equally geek geeky and socially awkward friends and coworkers, Howard Wolfowitz and astrophysicist Rajesh Kuthrapali. And the show's been described as four guys whose world is getting smaller and one woman whose world is getting larger. The geekiness and intellect of the four guys is contrasted for comic effect with Penny's social skills and common sense. And over time, supporting characters have been promoted. Bernadette is Howard's fiancée and subsequent wife. She's a microbiologist, a former part-time waitress. And of course, neuroscientist Amy Farrah Fowler, who is a neuroscientist in real life, a PhD, and who joins the group ever after being matched to Sheldon on a dating website. It's a show full of scientists. Come on. Much of the show focuses on science, particularly physics. They're employed at Caltech and they have science-related occupations and they frequently banter about scientific theories or news and make science-related jokes. Now, that seems like an oxymoron, but they prove that it's not. <laughs> David Salzberg at UCLA is a PhD in physics and has served as a science consultant. And while he knows physics, he sometimes needs a system from Amy Fowler, um, Amy Farrah Fowler, and she contributes as well. They see early versions of the scripts and they need scientific information added. He points out where the writers, despite their knowledge of science, have made a mistake. And he's usually not needed in taping unless a lot of science and the whiteboard are needed. But you see the whiteboard plays a prevalent role. Again, in my office, I have two eight-foot whiteboards. I love it. Now, religion plays a role in uh, Big Bang as well. Sheldon was raised in a Christian fundamentalist household. He refers to his childhood as hell and a recurrent theme of his conflict with his devout mother, Mary, whose creationist beliefs often clash with Sheldon's understanding of evolution. In the Lunar Excitation episode, Sheldon mentions the promise to Mary of going to church once a year. And in his continuing uh, battle with Will Wheaton, after scoring a spare and bowling, Sheldon happily exclaims, thank you, Jesus, uh, as my mother would say, he says. And in the episode, The Zarnecki Incursion, Sheldon can be heard exclaiming, why hast thou forsaken me, O deity whose existence I doubt? <laughs> and according to Raj, when Sheldon got food poisoning at the Rose Bowl, he begged the deity in which he didn't believe to kill him quickly. Howard is Jewish, Raj Hindu, both semi-observant, defying many religious customs without worry. They flout dietary prohibitions and tend to give each other grief about them, Raj quotes from the Torah, after Howard eats pork. And Howard sharply says he holds his tongue when Raj eats a Big Mac. Still, Raj mentions reincarnation and karma. Howard celebrates at least some Jewish holidays, but he refuses to get tattoos so he can be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Neither Leonard nor Penny's religious conviction are made clear. Leonard approaches Christianity with less skepticism than Sheldon. Penny has expressed belief in ghosts, astrology, and psychics. Bernadette is a Catholic, frequently seen wearing a necklace with a cross, while Amy is agnostic stating in one episode that she understands the notion of a deity but is skeptical of one who would take attendance. I was going to show you some clips from an episode that aired on Thursday when his mom comes to visit. Um, that's not working, but you, it is a very popular show, and religion really plays uh, a bigger role than you think when you watch the show carefully. Um, and of course, it revolves around science. And there's many high-profile scientists who have been there, Nobel Prize laureates, George Smoot. And of course, in April this year, uh, cosmologist Stephen Hawking was there as a short guest appearance, meeting Sheldon, pointing out a mistake in his new Higgs boson analysis. I wonder how that's worked out for Stephen. <laughs> well, whether you agree with this or what the point of view of the show, one of the things that the show does is that science is cool. And this program is shown globally, and it's the number one comedy on television. At Comic-Con, which was just last week here in San Diego, 
Kids flock to these stars and the show because it makes them interested and it generates interest in science. I don't know if you know, but the Big Bang Theory gave away tickets on a free ride to space on the suborbital ride, uh, new plane that's being developed by XCOR. They get it. They understand how to connect with that audience, and that audience, as a byproduct, is interested in science. It showcases real scientists, has a real scientist on the show, who actually is becoming a pretty good actor with her comedic timing. And the entertainment value and the comedy is first, but uh, the byproduct of this is generating an interest in science. And religion plays a role in this. And in some ways, I wonder if the creators couldn't avoid it, because as science asks big, big questions, so does faith, so does religion. So I have a suggestion, a very practical suggestion that each one of you could do. And that is, you should be giving a Sunday school class in your church using Big Bang Theory. Now, I'll tell you what I do uh, every year with the Academy Awards. I run a class in, uh, at my church on Best Picture nominees. So before the Academy Awards, we finish the class the Sunday that the awards go on. The assignment is that this week you'll go out and watch Hugo, and you come back to class with your Bible having watched Hugo, and we're going to talk about, does it meet these seven words? What does it say? What does it mean? You know, sort of a very simple Bible study, and compare those things. What's true? What's not true? My class is packed. What other Sunday school class do you have where you have to go see a movie and, and bring your Bible? Nobody. So you're going to run a class, right, every week where you go see Big Bang Theory and come back and talk about the science, talk about the faith, talk about all those elements inside that TV show, uh, whether they're true or not, using your Bible. I guarantee your class is packed. I guarantee you'll be the most popular Sunday school class in your church. And like you, you can be a star for your kid. Because, uh, you know, dad's hip, dad watches uh, Big Bang Theory. Now, there's 100 episodes out there, so you have a lot of stuff in the past. You can grab stuff from a topic if you want, or you can uh, take it week at a time. But I think that's a very practical way that all of you should, uh, should take home. I want to talk for a moment about the future, and then we'll, let, we'll ask, uh, have some questions. The movie business in general is going global. Two-thirds of the business now for movies is overseas. It's not here. The U.S. is a mature market. It's declining, probably around 10% if you take away ticket prices and all the sort of um, ways that we try to fool you. Um, the movie business is in decline in the U.S., but it's exploding overseas. So the whole business is taking on a more global uh, attention. So when movies are cast and when movies are put together, the storylines... Uh, you don't make China the bad guy. Um, you try to find other characters that have meaningful um, business in other countries because it's more global. It's also about content, and it'll always be about content. Um, technology is cheap and easy, but the story is still the issue. You can go on YouTube. You can make a movie. It's free. How's that working out? 98% of that stuff is crap, right? This, it, it, maybe there's 1% that actually has value. Uh, so regardless of the platform, the story matters, and it'll always matter. Uh, movies are not obsolete. Uh, their demise has always been predicted. There's just more choices. My friend, uh, his 14-year-old son, they have on the dining room table, they've got 10 or 15 uh, AMC movie ticket passes. They're free, and they're on the table. And uh, he says to his son, you know, these are, these are for you. Anytime you want to use them. Okay, it's cool. They sit there. Well, you, well, you don't want to use them? Uh, not yet, Dad. It's fine. And what he does want to do is he's got his iPad open in his room all day, live on Skype, and his friends come and knock on, their, on the desk, and they talk on Skype, or they play Xbox, or they do all sorts of other things. There's lots more choices than an older generation that is you know, used to going to the theater to get uh, their entertainment. The appointment viewing is gone. And then there's you know, the issue about what we do as Christians in making movies. I don't even know what Christian movies are. Do I want a Christian plumber? I don't think so. I want somebody who's going to fix my pipes. I don't want them to pray over my pipes. I want my pipes to work. That's the same thing about movies. I want, I want the movies to work. I want to be entertained. Um, as Rebecca referenced last night, agenda-motivated movies, those are documentaries. We need to stop answering questions that nobody's asking. We use too many code words. Even when we use the word Lord in our faith community, that means something to us. But outside of our community, it's ancient. They don't know. What, it's, it's out of touch. Fifty years from now, there'll be no film re retrospectives on facing the giants. 
there will be on, on Tree of Life. And to finish, I think there's three things we need to be doing. Three things in your field, three things in my field that we need to be doing. We need to be excellent. I need to be an excellent storyteller. We have to tell the best stories. We have to be the best scientists. We have to be the best in whatever field we're in. I tell students who want to make a movie, I say, you know what, why don't you make the stewardship video in your church? There's no competition. No one wants to do that. No one wants to get involved. It's very important. No one's going to tell you how to do it. And see if you can make an emotional connection. See if you can tell a story that gets the church member to separate their visa card uh, from their wallet and actually give money to the church. It's hard to do, but it demonstrates that you've got the excellence of telling a story. We have to be better communicators. George Barna quotes that most people, two hours after a sermon, can't recall the theme of the sermon. But people can quote lines from a movie years afterwards. It's because of the way they're done. Maybe our sermons be, need to be more like TED Talks. There are great, timeless stories out there. A friend of mine does marketing for the studios, and they're coming out with a musical version of Les Mis. And they contacted him to promote this to churches, and they said, we're not sure, but maybe there's something in Les Mis that might connect with the church. Are you kidding? This is Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo had two million people in Paris at his funeral. He was involved in the church. We weren't sure if he's a Christian or not. The last bit of his will says, I believe in God. But he wrote re redemptive stories. Is there a connection? No. Well, you know, when we make derivative stories from just the last movie, we don't know that. So at a studio, they don't, they're not really sure. So he's going to help point out how there's a redemptive theme in that Les Mis. Relevant, the other thing. We need to be relevant. We need to be commercial. We need to be marketable. I don't think there's any bad stories. But does anyone besides your mom want to hear them? I have to evaluate stories that will reach an audience and return an investment. I'm in this as a business where I can get to a wide audience. But again, the technology is free. If you think you have the goods, go for it. Show up if you have the stuff. But as Christians in the marketplace, I think we have to up our game. Steven Spielberg's doing a movie about Moses. Darren Aronofsky is doing a movie about Noah. Mark Burnett, who did the TV series Survivor, is doing a series on the Bible. There's a Bible game show coming about, uh, you know, what I used to call sword drills when I was in Sunday school. Um, we've got to up our game uh, to compete and to be commercial and to be heard in the marketplace. And the final thing is about integrity. It's the one thing we don't teach in film school. We don't give a grade and we don't give an award. But this is where life catches up with us. It's your story that's important, far more than your content or your ideology. Your willingness to go on that same hero's journey is what life's about. Discovering your self-revelation is what gives you new power, new connections, and infects others and drives you forward. Make no mistake, we are people of the journey. That is how God shapes us and how our character is shaped for the destination. We long and hope for the ending. It's already decided, but the journey is what makes us into God's image. Some questions? We'll show you. I see you there in the dark. Yeah, I appreciate your remarks very much. In fact, in our church, what they do is that we have a very popular series called Act of Movies, where then what they do is um, for a month, we have uh, our pastors taking various current movies and talking about themes and relating to the scripture. The one thing that I do feel very uncomfortable about is uh, I appreciate also your remarks about the Big Bang Theory series. But I and have to admit, my children are like it, but I find it very difficult to sit through them, not because there are many characters who I could uh, identify uh, as having counterparts in my institution, but because of the, if I may be one, the preoccupation with sex, the series seems to have yeah. many jokes that involve the uh, escapades of the protagonists in a tent of a cup. Now, of course, the whole idea goes back to Mae West and earlier in terms of the uh, appeal for this kind of thing. But the question I wonder about is that, is that so integral and part and parcel to the appeal of the show? And 
would it be possible to have that kind of show without that kind of preoccupation? As if this is what these businesses really are preoccupied with. Maybe I'm just taking too, too small a sample, but at least that's what makes me kind of hesitant and, and feel very personal and comfortable watching the series. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I think it's uh, uncomfortably um, prominent in the, in the making of the show. I think the best thing you're doing is watching the show with your kids so that you're there to help interpret and ask those same questions about, is that really what life's about? Okay, it's not like Sheldon. It's not asexual, but it doesn't have to be promiscuous. So I think the fact that you're there to interpret is the best thing possible uh, for your kids so they don't take that in uh, unvarnished. Um, Sure, it's possible. Those guys have chosen to uh, make the show in that way. You're familiar with the Jobs Act that this past Congress? It uh, allows you to raise a million dollars without any kind of SEC, without any kind of break whatever. And I was wondering if you had a, if you look at Hollywood, there's really no minor league. What if you could come up with really good stories? Could you, like, create production value that might work Sure. I think, sure. The, uh, traditionally through the years, television has been that training ground, has been that minor league uh, uh, field. I think today you're seeing that uh, Netflix, uh, Google, Amazon, uh, and even Facebook will be sponsoring movies at that price point to do exactly what you're saying, is to uh, not only test out those new distribution models, but also to, like, this is what HBO did at the beginning as well. HBO 25, 30 years ago licensed other stuff and then started making lower budget movies and grew into who they are today. So, yes, that is happening. Uh, lots of people are doing that. It's tough to compete. It's, it's all about the writing. So it's all about a great idea. Again, nothing's stopping anybody from making a movie and putting it on YouTube. Uh, it's just not very good stuff and there's no way to monetize it. So. Everybody's looking at exactly those kinds of models. Every studio has a micro-budget division. It tends to be horror. It tends to be lower, uh, sort of barrier to entry kinds of movies. It's harder to get thoughtful ones and spend that money. All right, back to content. You bet. It's all relative. You know, uh, when's the last time you went to a, a Laker game? Never. <laughs> yeah, well, check the Laker tickets or uh, baseball tickets or, you know, when you add it up, it's actually still a pretty good value for even a family. Now, look, as it, I'm working the business, and when I had my kids were younger and taking the theater, the first thing I'd do is take them to McDonald's and tank them up, right? And then we get to the theater and say, you guys want some pop? Oh, Dad, I'm full. Oh, okay, okay, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's, there's ways to be sort of discerning about that, I think, as a parent. Um, but I just always mystified why you go to the theater and room after room after room is pretty much empty. And yet, there never seems to be any kind of okay. message Here's a favorite soapbox of mine. I think exhibitors are not very smart. For instance, their high-margin item is popcorn. But i got to buy the low-margin ticket to buy the high-margin... I'm an entrepreneur. It's backwards. I'm going to sell that popcorn outside. I'll make a lot more money in the popcorn than I do in the ticket. Why are you selling popcorn? Out? I'd be blowing that, that aroma outside, right? Why not go in the community and solicit? I was telling this to someone else last night. Uh, you know, you see the movie uh, Gladiator. You love the movie Gladiator. Well, why does an exhibitor build a relationship in the community to say, you know what, if you get 500 of your friends to come, I'll give you a discount, and I'll bring that movie in, and we'll have a spectacular screening of Gladiator. We'll run it twice if you want. Why not? Otherwise, the, the, the world's changed. You can't stand at the, at the door and wait for people to come in and take their tickets. That business is gone. I think the movie business eventually will be showing movies on Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. And on Monday night, it'll be sports. And on Tuesday night, it'll be opera. And on Wednesday night, it'll be family. And on Thursday night, something else, and it'll be back to movies. Because you go to a movie theater now on a Tuesday night, and it's your own personal screening room. It's cool. I like it. But I don't think it's making any money. They're not very smart. So the, all of the transitions that are happening right now is making everybody question what's the distribution, what's the, the business model 
that actually makes it work. So I think those solutions are going to bubble to the top and figure it out. We may get to dynamic pricing the way theaters, um, you know, uh, live theater has, uh, so that movies that aren't doing as well, they lower the ticket price. Movies that are, that are wanted have a higher ticket price. Uh, we'll see. But I think it's, it's got to shake out. It has to. Um, oh, you were saying it's going more global. Yes. I watch a lot of Russian movies. Yes. Polish I'm going to movies. Moscow tomorrow. Yep. It doesn't flow in the same way. Right. And in fact, stops in the middle sometimes, I feel like. Right. Everybody dies and it's over. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is why I'm going to Moscow tomorrow. And this idea that, like, only God can finish a movie, so sometimes they don't, like, tie it up with anything they need So if it's going global, is there more of a, you think American movies are going to become a little bit more, ours are kind of always, like you said, you <laughs> but when you come away from American movie, you feel kind of bad about your own life because these people are mobs and they're it's rich funny. and they drive nice cars. And in Russian movies, it's like, well, they're all dead now. <laughs> or like there's one person still alive and their whole family. I mean, is there a sense of that since it's going more global? Uh, there is a sense. I think one of the best things we have to export is our method of telling stories that reach a global audience. So we're preparing a movie in Korea about the Korean War. The Koreans tell movies about the Korean War the way the Jewish population tells movies about the Holocaust, but they don't really extend out very far. So what we're doing is trying to make a global movie that will overperform in Korea about that forgotten war that, that you know people have, uh, don't really know much about. And with Korean stars, with American stars, an American writer, maybe an American or a British director, hopefully to tell a story that, again, will tell the truth of it for the Korean audience but tell it in a way that brings in a wider audience that otherwise would be turned off by that. We're doing that in Russia. We're doing that in China. That, that's where the business is going. It's trying to figure that out. Now, it's not because we're smarter, okay? Uh, I think that, that we just have a lot more experience telling those kinds of stories. They're going to figure it out, and they're going to figure it out in their own way. And I think there's only about a five- or ten-year window before that happens. When you see a couple of examples that actually break through, a light goes on, and we're all good at copying, so we'll all figure it out. Thank you very much for your great presentation. I have a question kind of following up from Bob back there in the back about how we feel sometimes torn about series like the Big Bang Theory because while in my colleague group, you know, everyone thinks it's a great series and I think it's very funny and, and uh, we promote it as a science kind of support kind of show um, and yet in the package with the series as, as, we, as you already discussed is is this assumption that teenagers, anybody who watches the show, would get that you are expected to be involved in, in sexual activity outside of marriage and all those things that's just part of the show. Everybody's involved. It's, it's casual, it's expected. Yeah. And that's a message that comes along with the package, of which Christians kind of feel some hesitancy and just being a lot supportive of that. So my question for you is, as a producer, when you get asked to come and produce various shows or movies, you must, and as a Christian, you must also have to weigh what's in the package with this, with That's this right. film or the series, and can I support, can I be part of this if part of the package I might not feel is right? Do you have to run across this kind of dilemmas and how do you make the choice of when to kind of accept some of the stuff you don't feel is right because the larger package has more good than bad, or vice versa when you say, I'm not going to be involved in this series or this movie because there are Sure, all the time. More the former than the latter. So, for instance, I did a movie called Hocus Pocus, and the Christian community was on my case all the time. How could you make a movie about witches? And uh, most of the people that complained about that movie had never seen the movie. And when you see the movie, you realize that the older boy gives up his life for his little sister, and the three witches get their comeuppance at the end of the movie. Does that remind you of anything? 
Does that, does that ring a bell? So I felt like it was more worthwhile to be supportive and to make that movie. And along the way, there's other stuff I was able to sort of excise from the movie about white witches and stuff that was just not... Again, here, here's where I think the value is of being an excellent storyteller, is what's making a better story? So I, I didn't get all the words out, but I got most of the bad words out of Wolverine. Because I went to the heads of the studio and said, how's that helping the story? And do you realize that by saying that word, that there's a lot of people in the middle of the country who will not come? They won't come. Why would you do that? He's really upset. Okay, well, there's lots of words he can use without using that word. So I think that, you know, uh, being a good storyteller allows me to argue that with those people on a business level, as opposed to saying, which I believe, but it doesn't, wouldn't have the same weight to say, well, the Bible says, but that's not going to sway the, the day. But if I can be an excellent storyteller, I think it does. So that's what I strive to do is to figure out how can I help them make a lot of money? And here's how you can do that. Don't say that word. I'm a big fan of Star Trek, and I really uh, enjoyed the movies. I enjoyed the series. Uh, one of the things I like about the series is uh, it it puts uh, us in fantastic situations where we have to deal with moral dilemmas. Yeah. Like uh, I was interested in hearing you comment a little bit about uh, some of the religious uh, themes or opportunities in Star Trek, uh, and or. Sometimes it's, it has a particularly utopian view yeah. of the universe. Yeah. Uh, and this is sort of related to last night's um, uh, talk as well, where you, you don't really wrap I hear both of you saying you don't really want to necessarily wrap up the, the story uh, in a, night, a nice uh, bow right. where, where you ask the big questions. And then maybe me and my friends after the, after the movie or this, or this series, have a discussion about this overly utopian view and, and engage that way. Uh, I, I guess my, my question is how, um, is there not a place for a movie to wrap things up if, if you have that opportunity? Yes, I think there is a place for that, but I think it takes superior storytelling. Uh, I, I just think you have to be so compelling about how you tell the story and wrap it up. Um, that you know, I, I just don't. I don't have that skill set. Maybe someday, but I think that's really hard. Um, and I think you know, n nobody, nobody really comes to a theater to be preached to, so they don't want to know the answer in that sense. People come to be challenged. You know, the sad thing about what happened in Colorado is that part of what we do when we come to a movie is we come vulnerable. We 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 want to be challenged. We want to involve ourselves in the story. And the geek fans that show up for Batman. They want to enjoy and, and, and live in that world. And that's what that guy took advantage of. And, and that's what's hideous about you know, what happened. So I, I think the moviegoers want to be vulnerable. They want to uh, be open to a new world, a new story, a new idea. Um, but I think it's tricky to wrap it up in a package and make it... Uh... See, I'm not a fan of the book, a book of Eli, for instance, right? You know, it's got Denzel Washington, he helped tell the story, and I think the studio thought that by telling that story, by the very end, that you know, he was blind and he, the book is saved because he memorized the entire book, and the book goes on the shelf next to the book of the Quran. We learn nothing about Denzel Washington's character on that, on that trip, nothing. What did he learn? He quoted scripture, he prayed, and how did he fight when he was blind? I don't figure that out, I don't know how he did that. But, there's nothing substantial that we learned about that guy and what he learned on that journey. And it goes on the shelf along with everything else. Who are Christians? I mean, I'm going to be nice to Denzel Washington. He's a cool guy, but they tried to wrap it up with a bow. And I, and I think it's really, really hard to do. Really hard. Now, do you think the shrinking screen real estate kind of have in the modern age has any impact on how you convey stories of movies? You've gone from the big theater screens to maybe... 20 to 30-inch home screens, and now I do a lot of my movie viewing on a smartphone. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, not, it's not ideal, but do you think, is that something that's in the mindset of movie maker, or is it still kind of ideally for that large visual real estate and then understanding people using a smaller screen, you're just kind of accepting smaller, less than that? It's actually worse than that. 
More people will see the movies I make on, a, on an airplane than they will anywhere else. Through a tube that's like got air in it or something that gets the sound to your ear. I don't know how that even works. Um, we do think about all those other formats and actually when you mix the movie, when you actually put the sound together, one of the last steps we do is play the movie back through very tiny speakers because that's generally where a lot of people will play it back in their home. But what excites me and gets me worked up about making a movie is that I get to show something on an 80-foot screen and have 50 speakers and make your buttons unravel from the stitching because of what's happening. And I provide an experience that you cannot possibly get at home. And you can't get it in a dark room with a lot of other people. So that's still what I'm aiming at. Maybe that's old-fashioned, but um, that's the experience that we're going after. It's far less watching it on your iPhone. Um, I don't know if I could sit for two hours and watch it on my iPhone. I'm not sure, actually. But we do consider that. Uh, but generally, we're making a movie for the, for the big screen experience. I am, at least. I think um, I've actually made this comparison in a worship service as well, that great worship services and great movies are about content, about structure, and about style. We talked about structure today, about how a story is structured. In some ways in Hollywood, we only talk about structure and style. It doesn't matter what the movie's about. And contrast that with the church, where all we do is talk about what the content is. And we don't care that it's a 45-minute sermon. The, the information is so important, it doesn't matter the structure and style. Well, we need to talk. <laughs> we need to help each other because as filmmakers, we need to think more about what the content is. And in the church, we could do with a little structure and style. Um, but that's what sells. And so the commercial business is about that style, that sizzle. Um, and sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. So, you know, most people find websites or reviewers that they trust. Uh, and, and use them as a sounding board before they spend their time to go see a movie. And that's not a bad way to go. Right. I'm a, a movie nut and have been on uh, There's a set of maybe 10 or 15 films that I just never tire of watching again and again and again. And my life is mm -hmm. absolutely crazy. Huh. I watch Casablanca for the fun. Yeah, yeah. There's another movie on the beach. No one else has ever watched this movie except me and me. But I love that film and I never tire of it. So, sort of a two-part question. You have a similar top several yes. films that are back for yeah. you. And then if you could like a little bit about other, I know things go wrong, but other things go wrong. What makes a film really timeless? I think part of what makes those movies timeless is the world that's created. That's part of the reason you come to a big screening room is to go to a, I want to get immersed in a world. I want to go in a world where Luke Skywalker and um, Han Solo know when to fight, when not to fight. I want to go and I want to be in the same world as Maximus in Gladiator because he knows the right thing to do. And rather than just hear about it, I want to experience that when he does. I want to know when his senses are up. I want to know when he thinks about whether I'm going to fight or whether I'm going to stand down and take it. And I think part of it is that world that's created. That's what makes movies different than television, is that Avatar, certainly, you know, $3 billion around the world, created a world you've never seen before. And literally experiencing in a different way that you were like a window into a different place. Um, when, when that's there, that unique world, and there's good storytelling, then I think, you know, that's the combination that is a blockbuster. Those are the things that last. I, I, again, I think that world in Titanic, people wanted to go see it. They wanted to be in that world and experience what those people experience. That movie's been made a lot of times, plays and museums. It's amazing. Ben-Hur was a, a, a Civil War general who wrote that story. Uh, Les Mis has been done hundreds of times in many countries. But people want to go and experience that world and the forces that were working. And what would I do if I was there? That's why you watch those movies again and then, because you want to figure out, what would I do? 
I think that's what attracts us. We want to be, we want to put ourselves, we want to stick ourselves inside of that story. And that's what draws us back. Gladiator, I love, I just can't stop watching that movie. Um, you know, I, I tend to be a pop culture guy, so I like a lot of those. I, I like Avatar. Not everyone does. People say it's, you know, it's uh, Pocahontas on another planet or something. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it isn't about how complicated the story is. Um, it is, uh, it, it, it's compelling choices that Jake makes. Why didn't the disabled community step in and, and champion that movie? He comes in without legs. And he is literally, he talks about it at the end of the movie, he is reborn. Only, only a secular filmmaker is unafraid to say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be reborn tomorrow. Wow. I mean, I, I just think there's so many things about that movie and about that journey that happens. You can make fun of it and say that, you know, it's not a very deep story, but it, uh, the whole package together, the other world, everything else, makes it something that's memorable. Thanks very much. Let's thank you.